HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This week on Meet and 3, it's the final episode of our series on global trade. We're thinking futuristically, from China's ambitious plans for a new Silk Road to the future of borders and automation. If you're a banana, you know, it's easy to cross the border. But if you're a person who's trying to follow the jobs, uh, it's a lot more difficult, if not impossible, to do so in an authorized and safe fashion. They love food trucks and they love growing your own food because these things are not dependent on essentially government systems. So there's a whole politics to pretzels on the dark web. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Made me in the kitchen, what are we going to make? What do you Our histories share it on a plate. What do you taste? Bring your body, bring your love, bring the ones you're thinking of. Make space and Queer the Table is crawling back from a long, long winter break. This week, we're bringing you a recent episode from the podcast Rebel Eaters Club. It's a conversation between host Virgie Tovar and writer and activist Deshaun Harrison. It's about the ways that fat phobia and diet culture are inextricably linked to anti-Blackness. Here's Virgie. Do you remember the first time you felt the fizzy crackle of pop rocks on your molars? The triumph of getting a full-size Snickers bar in your trick-or-treat bag? The mind-blowing moment when your friend levels you up by teaching you how to mix peanut butter M&Ms into buttery popcorn at the movies? (gasps) Oh! Then, just when you think things couldn't get any better, you meet a fancy dark chocolate bar sprinkled with salt crystals at a tiny bougie grocery store. 
And there it is again, pure, unadulterated joy. We begin this season with something epic, tantalizing, and almost mythological. Candy. Unfortunately, candy isn't all sweet. And later in the episode, we're going to get into the history of candy. And I have to warn you, it's a little dark. But for now, let's keep the candy positivity going. Let me introduce you to Deshaun Harrison. So, yes, I am Deshaun Harrison. I am Black, fat, queer, trans, poor, disabled. I'm based out of Atlanta, Georgia and I wear a lot of hats. They are a brilliant writer, activist, and public intellectual par excellence. And their candy crush is Reese's. Velvety feel of the chocolate, along with like the gritty, but very smooth peanut butter feel. It just feels like me. I feel like I'm very, like a very velvety, smooth, rich chocolate type of person, but I also have like this grainy type of like inside. I've had to like kind of develop as like a, a defense mechanism, but also as um, who I am and a part of the environments I've, I've lived in and I've been in. So is there a ceremony to eating the... Re- I mean, I just want to know how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> there is no ceremony for me. I just, I mean, I've never actually seen a bear but what I imagine a bear, <laughs> what I imagine a bear looks like, <laughs> what I imagine a bear looks like when it's like super hungry, um, and it like goes into the water to like collect the fish. <laughs> okay, I love it. So let's. I'm gonna like try and emulate this bear thing that you've caught. It's kind of fun, and I'm just like ripping it open, and I'm just yeah. imagining that I'm in the wild. In the wild. Okay, should we do the just, bite together, or I don't know what we. Are. I let's put it in my mouth already. Let's, so. I want, let's just do it. We're gonna eat it. Okay. Wow. Mmm. I love Reese's. It's nice. Wow. That's my favorite. If I can just get my hands on a Reese's cup or tin, <laughs> I'm <laughs> I'm good to go. Like I'm set and it just feels like fat glory. <laughs> yes. I mean, do you remember when it became a comfort thing? It became a com- <laughs> You're going to, like, make me open up already. I'm ready. I want it. <laughs> You're ready for it. Um, I had a, a kind of rough childhood, so dealt with, like, a lot of, like, abandonment things with my dad. And bullying, of course, I've always been fat, so I, I was, like, a fat kid, and so I got bullied for being a fat kid. So Reese's, like, became, I guess just at an early age, just became, like, something that I gravitated towards because I think that, like, Reese's has just in a way, has inadvertently been like a, a representative of who I am. The first time I heard Deshaun on a panel, I was like, who is that? I could feel their urgency and enthusiasm for connecting all the dots between race, fat phobia, gender, eating, and health. We are socialized in in an anti-fat culture, um, one where we are taught that that sugar is always already bad. And and I think I think we have to really sit with what it means to choose pleasure over falsified myths 
um, yes. around 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 health, right? Like like what does it mean to to actively make the decision like? So I'm going to choose to eat three of these Reese's instead of one and I'm going to enjoy it. Right. Like, like yes. what does it mean to, to engage in that? And also, what does it mean to, to divest from the health industrial complex, the yes. diet industrial complex that's built off of the teachings of an anti-fat science and an anti-fat government that has always only existed to harass, berate and criminalize fat people? Whoa, the mic has been dropped. I promise we are going to get into everything Deshaun just said, but let's start at the beginning of Deshaun's food story. I am non-binary, but I, of course, grew up socialized as and perceived as a little Black boy. Um, and from for as long as I can remember, from kindergarten to 12th grade, I avoided eating in cafeterias. Um, I only felt comfortable eating around my my best, my childhood best friend. People would ask me, well, are you hungry? And I, my answer was always, no, I'm not hungry. But I was actively denying myself food and I was actively denying myself my desires, the things that did pleasure me, the things that did make me feel good and the things that I needed to survive, right? And so I was not the stereotypical person who would, who would be diagnosed with an eating disorder. I was never engaged as someone who could have an eating disorder. And in fact, I was told by one of my doctors that because I am an African-American boy and because I'm obese is what he called me, it, it was very unlikely that I had an eating disorder and that I w- they weren't going to engage me in that way at all. I was clearly like struggling with some disordered eating um, in that I wasn't eating, right? <laughs> um, and I remember uh, very vividly talking to my um, pediatrician maybe somewhere between eight and 10 years old. And I remember going into her and just talking about how much I hated my body. I was like, I'm, I'm so fat and I don't want to eat when I'm around people. People, talk, they talk about my weight and they, and they say these things. And so she said to me, well, you know, I hear you saying that you don't like your weight, but if you don't eat, your body's going to think that you're starving yourself and you're going to store more fat and then you will become more fat. And there was no, there was no comfort offer to me as an eight to 10 year old, the thing she had to offer me to reckon with and, and to sit with around my weight was, was not that, well, you should eat because you have to nourish yourself and it's okay to nourish yourself and it's okay to survive. Um, it's okay to live. Deshaun's story is really relatable. Hidden meals, fat shaming pediatricians, feeling invisible, and not having our needs met. This is stuff that people go through every day. I remember going to the doctor as a kid and hearing the kind of weight loss advice and fear tactics that Deshaun is talking about. I took everything my doctor said as a gospel because I didn't know anything different and neither did my family. I mean, you're supposed to listen to someone in a lab coat, right? And in my 20s, even after I learned that doctors actually weren't all-knowing God humans and I could set boundaries with them, deep down, I still believed that I was never going to have a positive relationship with a doctor. At 38, I finally decided I wanted to be an empowered and engaged patient. That meant listening to my gut, that my doctor was not treating me with respect. I started to research and interview new potential doctors. 
I was really clear about what I do and don't want. Rule number one, no more weigh-ins unless they are necessary for surgery or correct dosing. Rule number two, no weight loss advice. Rule number three, don't treat my weight as an illness. I'm a proud fat person. And rule number four, I live in a racist, fat phobic, and sexist culture as a fat woman of color, which means I have chronically high levels of stress that negatively impact my heart health and immune system. I told him, please make sure that whatever advice you give me takes into account the fact that I can only do so much to counteract the stress of injustice. But I'm an adult, not a 10-year-old kid like Deshaun was when they were getting blame instead of care. Their doctor failed them when they were at their most vulnerable. That's a common scenario for many fat people and many black people. So Deshaun created a support system they could trust. They built a community that could give them the tailor-made love they wanted. It was college for me that introduced me to people, to ideas, to to thoughts that I'd never had before um, around gender, around sexuality, around fatness, around blackness, around all of my identities that allowed for me to to stand a lot more firm in who I am and became more confident in myself because I became more confident in the people around me who loved me truly unconditionally, who loved me for exactly who I am and who were committed to learning about what it meant to loving me as a fat person. So many people don't know what it really necessarily means to love a fat person, right? Because we grow up learning to hate them. Um, And so finding community with people who all were committed to learning how to love me in my fatness and learning how to offer me a fat love, right? With the fat politic. Yes. I mean, so what does it mean to give you, Deshaun, fat love? Yes, I love that. Um, <laughs> I love that. And I, I honestly just came up with fat love on the spot. So I'm just I embracing it. it. <laughs> TM, fat love, TM. TM, exactly. <laughs> um, but fat love, it, it, it literally means being committed to, to seeing me in my fullness and my full self and not asking me to shrink myself, right? So I know my body takes up more room and you should allow it to. I love that one of my closest friends who was also fat, um, Hunter Shackelford, before we ever even go out to a place to eat, we're looking online to see what the seating looks like. And that to me is a fat love because it, it says that you want me to to enjoy eating so much that you're making sure that I can sit in the seats enough to be comfortable with the food that I'm eating. That's a commitment to pleasure. That's a commitment to desire. It's a commitment to seeing me being pleasured and being desired in a way that matters most to me, right? Um, and so like those type of, small things is what it means to provide someone with fat love. It means, you know, like, and not just on a, on a level of like, well, yeah, I think you're fuckable, but like on a level of, I think your you and your fatness are so beautiful and are so deserving of, of, of desire that I want to love you, be it platonic, romantic or otherwise, right? I want to commit myself to showing you the type of love that you need and, and the care that you need to make sure that that how I'm showing up for you in the world is exactly how you need to feel affirmed in your body and your being. Yes. I want to get into, you talked about desire, you talked about pleasure. 
what is your relationship to pleasure? What's your history with pleasure and desire? I know that's a big question, but do you have thoughts? <laughs> Woo, okay, how much time do I have? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think it definitely is a big question. Um, I have had such a horrible relationship to desire and desirability and desirability politics and um, all the things. My friends will always talk about, you know, how many ex-partners they have and sex partners they have and and all the things. I'm like, well, I don't have this experience. Um, I, I've, I've had a lot of sex with a lot of people and most of those instances have been one night stands and they've always been private and I've never had conversations with a lot of these people beyond that moment. Um, I, I oftentimes talk about how these days I'm very explicit with people about what it is that I want um, because otherwise people thin or fat will literally coerce you into a friendship that you never asked for. I don't want more friends. Um, I don't desire more friends and I've always been made a friend. Right. And they'll do that because they feel like, well, it's not coercive to, to make this fat person nurturing to you. And it's not coercive to make this fat person the mammy for you. And it's not coercive to make this person the fat Albert in your life because you that's what your your role is in life. Right. Um, that is to say that my relationship to desire has not been a great one since I've been a kid. It's a thing where people have oftentimes, again, you know, made me feel silly or or foolish for desiring love and sex and romance in the same ways that they've made me feel foolish and silly for desiring food, right? Yes. I mean, there's so many things you said that were, I mean, illuminating, resonating. But like the other thing that I really wanted to ask you was, it, this actually goes back to the beginning uh, with your snack choice of Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, so delicious. <laughs> um, and, you know, when I was thinking about this snack, I was thinking about how candy, sweet things, right? Like, they are a symbol of how extraordinary the body's capacity for pleasure and fun really is. Um, and, and I'm curious, very large question, um, why is this embodied form of pleasure, like, you know, enjoying candy. Um, so <laughs> terrifying to our culture. I think it's just, I think it's terrifying because we are, we, like, we are socialized in, in a diet culture. We're socialized in an anti-fat culture. Um, one where we are taught that, that sugar is always already bad. We're talking about it as something that we shouldn't have, that we shouldn't engage um, because it's quote unquote bad for you, and and I think I think we have to really sit with what it means to mm, choose pleasure over falsified myths um, yes. around 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 health, right? Like like what does it mean to to actively make the decision? Like okay, I actually don't give a fuck about whether or not this does or does not like do a bad thing to my quote-unquote health because I already don't believe in the idea of health itself. So I'm going to choose to eat three of these Reese's instead of one, and I'm going to enjoy it, right? Like, like what does it yes. mean to, to engage in that? And also, what does it mean to, to divest from the health industrial complex, the yes. diet industrial complex as a whole, the medical industrial complex that's built off of the teachings of an anti-fat science and an anti-fat government that has always only existed to 
harass, berate, and criminalize fat people. And I think that people internalize that, that sugar is bad and therefore candy is bad. And it's so hard to hear. But the, the reality is that is that if if we reach fatness, if we reach obesity, then we are dead. Right. There is no life in a fat person. There is no life in an obese person. I hate that term, but I'm using it intentionally. Um, And so what does it mean for me to actively avoid, actively work against, actively war against fatness so that I never have to see that? Let's take a second to let what Deshaun's saying sink in and maybe take a breath. Deshaun's words are reminding me of something troubling. I've noticed in movies and even on the news that when a thin person dies, their cause of death is always explained. There's surprise, condolences, and grief. But when a fat person dies, it's not always explained, as if it's obvious that it was their size that doomed them. And usually it comes along with a joke, an I told you so, or an expression of resentment that the person didn't take better care of themselves. Can you hear the side eye? And this doesn't just happen in the movies. Our culture is eager to see a fat person become a cautionary tale. Someone who proves that if you don't follow the rules, like if you aren't thin, bad things will happen to you. Those bad things are, as Deshaun points out, different kinds of death. First, you're seen as a failure. You become an outcast, a social death. Once you're an outcast, you become dehumanized. You have less access to friendship, income, and romantic relationships. It's a kind of spiritual death. And then, if you're fat and you die before you're 100 friggin' eight years old, your physical death becomes the moral to a bullshit story. Another way for other people to feel relief and comfort that the world works exactly the way they've been told it does. People who are bad or fat get punished. People who are good or thin get rewarded. When we talk about what fatness symbolizes in our society, I think of a book called Fearing the Black Body by the sociologist Sabrina Strings. Professor Strings is a major influence for Deshaun. Yeah, the opening chapter is her talking about exactly how anti-fatness becomes a coherent ideology. And it becomes a coherent ideology through the subjugation of Black people. Europeans saw Africans and were like, I thought I was okay with fatness, but then it looks like this. And I don't think I actually really enjoyed what these beasts look like, right? What these animals look like. Um, And so, you know, through colonialism and Christianity and and the construction of of anti-Blackness, came the the very construction of anti-fatness. And so when when I say anti-fatness as anti-blackness, I mean exactly that because one does not exist without the other. We've gotten so comfortable with using language like, well, yes, anti-fatness intersects with anti-blackness. And it's like, well, no, it doesn't. If you abolish anti-fatness today and don't abolish anti-blackness today, you don't abolish anti-fatness. They exist and they come online into a coherent ideology through the, the, through the exact same mechanisms. 
Yes, totally. I mean, I think a lot of people, you know this, a lot of people <laughs> understand fat phobia, diet culture, body image, body dysmorphia. Mm-hmm. They understand it as fundamentally um, not only a gendered issue, but they kind of consider it really a, a I don't know. I mean, a body image issue um, yep. or something like yep. that, it, it, which I'm just like, that's not it. Right. I'm like that. That's I mean, <laughs> right. you have to have a structure beneath that. That's you can't just point to the secondary symptom of a secondary symptom and say that's the thing. Um, right. <laughs> and so and, and I just kind of and I kept thinking about the, you know, the old white dudes who really brought us clean eating and diet culture. And they were anti-sex advocates, as you know, mm-hmm. um, and they were anti-masturbation advocates and they were also you know they were also people who were highly influenced by the by colonialism and colonial ways of thinking um and this idea that you that you construct an other and you dump every part of your shadow self into that other and then you hate that other I think that that is what is your what you're talking about Yes, yes, no, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, you know that in my opinion, everything ties back to colonialism because, well, it actually does. With that in mind, I wanted to share some things I found while I was doing research for this episode. The first is a poem written sometime in the 1820s by an abolitionist named Elizabeth Margaret Chandler. She starts out writing about sugar plum candies. No, no, pretty sugar plums, stay where you are. Though my grandmother sent you to me from so far. You look very nice. You would taste very sweet. Though I love you so dearly, I choose not to eat. Even what you have sent me by slavery made sweet. The poem got me thinking about the connection between candy where my conversation with Deshaun began, and slavery, the place where our conversation has landed. It turns out you can't tell the story of candy without telling the story of sugar. And sugar is the story of slavery. Sugar planters were some of the wealthiest people in the Americas, But before all that, in the Western world, sugar was just a rare delicacy reserved only for the fanciest people in Europe. Queen Elizabeth I had a legendary sweet tooth, a fact I can really relate to. She loved sugar so much that her teeth turned black. It even became fashionable for poor folks to blacken their teeth as a status symbol. I'd try it. There were two major reasons sugar was expensive. First, it only grew in tropical climate, so it had to be imported from the Caribbean or Asia. By the 1800s, everyone was putting sugar in their tea, and some shady-ass people figured there was a lot of money to be made if you could make sugar more cheaply. And this brings us to the second reason sugar costs so much. Labor. Planters cut the cost of this labor-intensive crop with slavery. Almost all of the slaves brought to the Caribbean colonies were sent to sugar plantations. These plantations were deadly. People working on them were 50% more likely to die than people working on other types of plantations. 
The work was more labor-intensive, the machinery more dangerous, and the plantation owners tended to be more cruel. There was even a saying among Cuban sugar planters, con sangre se hace azúcar, sugar is made with blood. Fast forward to today, sugar has fallen a long way from being a symbol of wealth and power. Now, sugar is looked down upon. It is associated with the quote-unquote bad decision-making. Our culture connects to poverty, fat people, and communities of color. The message is clear. Sugar leads to disease and death. In the so-called food deserts of big cities, people get food from independently owned convenience stores. And these are the sites of where Alton Sterling, George Floyd, and Eric Garner were killed. Whether it's the history of sugar and slavery, or the reality that going to a convenience store could lead to a police officer ending a person's life, it is no accident that food and death are blatantly linked when we're talking about Black people in America. Deshaun is paying close attention to those connections. I asked them what they'd learned doing research for their forthcoming book, Belly of the Beast, The Politics of Anti-Fatness as Anti-Blackness. <sighs> yes. <laughs> this is going to be my favorite part of the book. Um, I can just already tell. What made me think about this in the first place was I just one day was thinking about how everyone that I've seen on my TV, on my TV screen who had been murdered by police were fat, were fat men or fat mask folks. You think back to Mike Brown, who in a lot of ways is what ignited this, this movement, this wave of current activism. And then you start naming more people and it's Walter Scott and Alton Sterling and Samuel DeBose and George Floyd, who is not fat, but is large. And Tony McDade, who is not a cis man, but who is a trans man. And who is fat, right? And so you start thinking about all these names, all these Black folks, and you start reading headlines where you see Washington Post call Mike Brown beast. And you see Fox News call Eric Garner um, obese, right? And you see um, other news outlets call Walter Scott animalistic. Um, and you see them call Samuel DeBose aggressive, even though he was in his in his car, right? And Walter Scott was running away, Um and, and, and Mike Brown was 18 and Eric Garner was on the ground being choked, right? But this is the language that they use for, for these men who are being murdered by police, right? Who are being slain by police. So you start looking at, well, surely there is like, you know, at least the autopsy reports are, are giving us the sound judgment we need to hear that these men are being murdered and it's not their fault. But then you read autopsy reports and that's not at all what they're saying, actually. It's, well, they already had hypertension and they already were obese and they already had high cholesterol and they already were at risk of a heart attack. This is exactly what Deshaun was talking about earlier when they said fat bodies are already dead. Police officers who are murdering people are literally getting exonerated 
because an untimely death is what society expects for a fat person. Fat black mask folks, especially those who are dark skinned and or poor, are engaged as always already animalistic, as beasts, as as things that must be put down, right? As animals that have to be euthanized because our bodies are inherently aggressive. Our bodies are inherently murderous. Our bodies are inherently weapons. And it's especially true for the men and the mask folks who we often see on, on our screens for being murdered because of the continued idea that if you are fat and black and mask, you are inherently violent and you are inherently aggressive and you are inherently murderous and therefore you must be euthanized because you are a rabbit dog who cannot be contained, who cannot be trained, who cannot be put in his place. In the end, it was the abolition of slavery that also ended sugar plantations. By then, Napoleon, yes, that Napoleon, was mass-producing these things called sugar beets. Just beets with more sucrose. In the U.S., abolitionists and Black-led organizations started growing them and using collective buying power to purchase sugar made with paid labor. Listen, I'm not trying to make you feel even worse about sugar. As always, Rebel Eaters Club is 100% committed to being 100% anti-food shaming. I'm telling you this story because I want to show you that this history shapes our beliefs. This history is bitter, for sure. It's fraught, it's violent, and it's trapped a lot of people in hurtful ideas. But we work through this history every single day, not by choice, but because we've had to. We find joy, we find redemption, and like Deshaun, we find that the tiny moment of delight when a Reese's melts on our tongues can unlock the road back to our pleasure, back to our humanity, and forward to the history we want to leave for others. This is the world Deshaun wants to see. It would look like another place where I'm able to exist as a being who is engaged um, as something that that someone wants or that people want or that um, that the world wants to live. I would live, I think, off in a cabin somewhere with <laughs> with a partner who loves me well and who I love well. Um, And I write for fun and I read for fun. I don't read a lot of nonfiction. I read fiction and not fiction that makes me think, but fiction that just makes me enjoy. Um, Where I'm not trying to escape the, the world by building different realities because the new reality is already here. Where I am, you know, like excited about all the food that I'm going to eat and all that I'm going to take part in that's going to pleasure me and, and that's going to be enjoyable for me without any any guilt or shame because I don't know guilt or shame. And what does it mean for us to, to not know shame and not know guilt 
but only to no pleasure. Harmless pleasure, right? I think that is what my ultimate desire is, if I had to use that that language for it. This was amazing, and I can't wait for your book to come out. I'm so glad that we get to be on the planet at the same time. Oh, wow. Oh, that means so much <laughs> to me. Thank you. I'm a cancer, so I am so emotional. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much. That means a lot. Thank you. Just like we did in season one, we're giving you journal prompts. But this time, you can find them online. You'll find one journal prompt per episode at rebeleatersclub.com. Rebel Eaters Club is produced by Transmitter Media. Our lead producer is Jordan Bailey, and her favorite candy is peach rings. Lacey Roberts is our managing producer, and she loves a good Twix. Sarah Nix edits the show and can't live without peanut M&M's. And our executive producer, Greta Cohen, loves black licorice, but not the salty kind. And I'm your host, Virgie Tovar, and I love caramel patties from C's Candy. Ben Shano is our mix engineer. Special kudos to James T. Green and Jessica Glazer for the production assist and Utaka Yasuzawa, who wrote some of the music we use in the show. If you love Rebel Eaters Club, tell your friends and share the love by writing a review on your fave podcast app. See you next week.